Hello, welcome to Ethical Theory Review. Today's book is Conceiving People, Genetic Knowledge and the Ethics of Sperm and Egg Donation. The author is Daniel Grohl. He's an associate professor and chair at Carleton College. I'm no longer chair. I'm sorry. Oh, you are so lucky. Okay, well, we'll start with that. Sorry. <laughs> I don't think you're sorry, but I'll take your word for it. Um, so, uh, Daniel, thanks for coming on. And I, I wanted to start just by, you know, kind of situating your book for, for listeners that, you know, the title says the ethics of sperm and egg donation also talks about genetic knowledge. We'll be talking a lot about that. Yeah. But one thing is there are other questions about egg and sperm donation. You don't, you're not interested in addressing like the Catholic church holds that IVF is immoral and that questions about that have to do with, for example, the moral status of embryos. And so in your book, you're basically bracketing those questions, which obviously, you know, are interesting and you probably have things to say about, and your focus is on cases of someone thinks that it's morally permissible or okay to use a donated gamete in general, or they start out there, questions about, let's say uh, a couple or a single person or whoever it is, uh, has a child using uh, a donated gamete. What should, should they keep that a secret? May they, is it morally okay to keep it a secret from the child later is one big question. Yep. Um, another thing is that you can, in some cases, choose or seek out different types of donors, open donors or anonymous donors. And so your book is focused on, you know, questions about why would, why would you choose? What, what are the moral issues of why you should choose an open donor versus an anonymous donor? Or, uh, and then let's say either way, let's, is it permissible to keep it as a secret from, from the child? And so that I thought we could start out with that. If, you know, if you want to say anything else by way of introduction, but I, and we sort of get into this question about, let's say you've had a child, uh, is it permissible to keep it as a secret is, is your sort of first topic? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you, you, you noted that the topic is in some ways circumscribed. So you mentioned, you know, people might have principled objections to various reproductive technologies to begin with. There are philosophers who are, uh, are you know, these antinatalists who think so no one in any way should be bringing children into the world. Um, there are less principled anti, uh, not, I shouldn't say less principled, people who are antinatalist on more practical grounds. Um, we should adopt rather than create new children. And those are all, I think, interesting positions well worth exploring. But you're right. The book takes off um, sort of from this position of, okay, you're going to conceive with donated gametes. Now you confront this choice. Um, should you use an anonymous donor or should you use someone whose identity will become known or, or is available to be known to the child when the child uh, is older? Um, what I call an open donor. Um, you know, or there's in fact a third choice. Should you choose someone that you know um, and that will be known to the child from the get-go, what I call a known donor? Um, it's worth saying something about what we mean by anonymous donor because we live in an age where anonymity is in, in fact, uh, you know, borderline a thing of the past. So, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago, if you were an anonymous donor, uh, you could probably reasonably believe that you would remain anonymous. Um, but these days, uh, that's not a good bet to take. So it, it, in some ways you might think, well, what's, what's the issue? Like if, if we're at the end of anonymity, then, then what's, what's to say? 
But I do think there's a lot to say. Uh, um, one thing is, is that calling someone an anonymous donor does not mean, of course, that they will in fact remain anonymous, right? In this world of 23andMe, you may well get that phone call or that email out of the blue. Um, it, it's uh, a normative category. It's saying the person's identity um, ought to be kept secret, at least from the point of view of the donor uh, and the agency who is you know, taking the, 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 um, the gametes. Um, but then also morally, there's a big difference, I think, between, you know, if, if it's true that you can, one could find out who a donor is, um, uh, even if they're, they donate anonymously, there's a big difference between putting that on the resultant offspring who then needs to do the detective work uh, to track down someone who they know didn't want to be tracked down uh, uh, versus making the choice up front to be uh, to be known, uh, uh, to be available to be known. Um, uh, and I think, so, um, I think there's a, an important ethical difference there. So it's still worth talking about, but then even apart from that, I mean, if you think, you know, anonymity is a thing of the past, I think there's still an interesting philosophical question of, okay, is that, is that good or bad? Um, no, I'm inclined to think on the whole, it's probably good, but, um, the, I mean, this is something I mentioned in the book, though the topic in some ways might seem like it applies to a relatively narrow section of the population that are conceiving with donated gametes, that are donating their gametes, or, or who, people who've been conceived by donated gametes, uh, it really raises questions for everybody uh, because we are all somebody's children in some way, shape, or form, and we all uh, um, have views, um, implicit or otherwise, about the significance of um, being genetically related to people or the insignificance of it. Um, and so thinking about the uh, ethics of conceiving people where uh, in a way that they are not raised by and in some cases have no idea who their genetic parent is, I feel like it, it really gets at issues that are important for all of us to think about and that we all in some ways think about in some way, shape or form. Um, so right, so, so that's the approach of the book. Um, and you're right. It's one of the first questions that, that at least some people need to think about if they're going to conceive with donated gametes is whether to tell the child or not. Yeah. And I was thinking, I mean, that's cause that for me, like one thing about, cause I, when you first start reading the book, uh, and if, you know, people, I should mention it's out with Oxford university press. And so I also wanted to mention, if you go to your website, you've got a cool link to your local bookstore. So if they want a yeah. copy, that's what they should do. But, uh, when you, when you brought up the question of, um, you know, should people keep it a secret or not? Or is there something wrong? One thing I noticed about that is you could, I think even if you're not part of the population, you don't know anyone who is uh, in this situation, they're not considering using a gamete or they, you know, you can imagine the scenario, uh, okay, what if your parents actually, unbeknownst to you, uh, you're, you, you're one of your, you were, uh, there was a donation in your case and you're, uh, that's, that's actually your genetic background. Right. And your parents have kept it a secret from you. Uh, would it would that have been okay? And so I thought that was that's why I kind of like in part you can I think that's very easy to inhabit. And you know, for all most of us know that that could be. It's, it's hard to say we know for sure that's not true. So that, that's so, right. And then so yeah, that's I think that first chapter is kind of interesting that way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, and it raises um, uh, broader questions just about secret keeping and families in general. What's permissible to to, to keep from your child or from someone else in your family. Um, so yeah, I mean, you mentioned, uh, I mean, my view is that people should not keep it a secret from the child. Now, some people don't, don't realistically have a choice. Uh, 
Uh, um, uh, so single uh, parents, it's it, it, they could, but they would have to tell a different kind of story. Um, but gay and lesbian couples, it's really not on the table to keep it a secret. Um, the people for whom it's on the table are heterosexual couples. Um, and that's significant because what they can effectively do is pass as a biogenetic family. Um, uh, and, uh, and so now you might wonder, well, why should they tell if they should tell at all? Um, and various arguments are made for why people should disclose. And that, that is now like sort of the consensus professional opinion people should disclose. Um, and I accept some of the common arguments, I reject some of them, and then I try to offer a, a novel argument. So, I mean, one view um, is just that, look, this is profoundly significant knowledge. Uh, and everyone um, is entitled to it. Um, and everyone uh, needs it in order to lead a, a flourishing life. Um, and so to not tell your child is to deprive them of uh, this profound prudential good. Uh, if you think that that's true, then, I mean, you got to tell. Uh, um, to not tell is uh, um, to keep something from your child that they absolutely need to flourish. Um, now, I, 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 for reasons I think that will maybe come out as we go on, I don't endorse that view because I don't think that... Um, having genetic knowledge, by which I mean knowing who your genetic parents are, is this profound prudential good uh, uh, that some people think it is, and we can talk about why that is. So that's one argument for not keeping the secret, um, but it's not one that I endorse. There's two others that are very common, and I endorse both of them. So one is, you know, there are really good medical reasons for wanting to know your genetic past. Um, your social parents, the people raising you, might have various conditions. And if you think you're genetically related to them, you may well think that you're um, uh, uh, prone to get those conditions. Uh, and that can be a tremendous source of anxiety. And, and boy, it would be great to know that, in fact, uh, you're not likely to get that condition because you're not genetically related to one of your one or yeah, one or both of your parents. Um, and it can work the other way. Maybe your parents have no conditions that are uh, uh, um, uh, passed down genetically, um, but but boy, your genetic parent does, and you have no idea. Um, so it's a really obvious why, for medical reasons, it can be really important to know that you are donor conceived. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty compelling. Um, so that's one that's one reason not to keep the secret. Um, another is what I call the harmful secrets view, which is just that uh, keeping secrets can result in real harm. And uh, you mentioned one way that that can happen, which is that uh, you know you uh, you send away you know you're interested in your family's background, uh, and you do 23andMe, and then you get the results back, and a bomb goes off in your life, and you're you know you're in your 40s or you're in your 20s or your 30s or older. Uh, and all of a sudden, everything you thought that you knew about your family, the rug is pulled out from under you. Uh, and that's just shocking. Uh, um, that can uh, engender serious you know, mistrust within the family unit, um, a lot of hurt. Uh, uh, and um, uh, and uh, so keeping the secret's a risky bet, because if it comes out, it can be extremely harmful. Uh, and, and it's not just through 23andMe. There's lots of stories of people finding out from other people who knew, you know, so the social parents have told their close friends and their close friends let it slip years later. Um, that's not great. Um, but then apart from that, even if the secret never explicitly comes out, um, it, can, it can generate sort of a psychic toll on family life. 
uh, where the parents have this thing that they treat as significant, uh, um, or at least they assume the child will treat as significant. And so there's this unspoken thing. And it's, again, not at all uncommon for donor-conceived people to be like, ah, there is always something. Uh, um, and, so, and so I think just from the point of view of a healthy family unit, it's good not to, not to keep the secret. So you've got the the medical reason medical reasons for not keeping the secret. You've got this view about the the harmful effects of keeping a secret. I think those are pretty compelling, but I think there's more to say. Um, so the way that I set it up, I do this sort of philosopher's move and say, well, suppose the secret could be perfectly kept. Uh, and what I mean by that is, suppose it had no negative knock-on effects, either medically or in terms of the functioning of the family unit. None whatsoever, nothing ever bubbled up to the surface. Um, and we can ask, in that case, would it be permissible to keep the secret? Um, and my view is that it still wouldn't be. Uh, and the reason is that I think it's deceptive. Uh, I don't necessarily think it's wrong to deceive your children. I think we sort of deceive our children in ways biggish and smallish all the time that, that I'm inclined to just be like, eh, it's part of parenting. Uh, but in this case, I think it's problematically deceptive. Um, just to make the case that it is deceptive, I mentioned earlier that it's a particular kind of uh, couple that can keep the secret. Um, it, it's the couple that uh, a man and a woman that sort of meets the heteronormative picture of what um, a family unit is. And I said they can effectively pass um, as a biogenetic family, as a family where the parents are genetically related to their child. Uh, and I think keeping the secret in that context is playing on that ability. Uh, it's taking advantage of the fact that the default assumption, both of the people around you, but also for the child, um, is that if I'm not told otherwise, if it never comes up, um, it's not even the child is like, well, I've not been told that I'm donor conceived, so I must not be donor conceived. It doesn't even reach that level of awareness. Just these are my parents. Uh, and uh, uh, parents are uh, genetically related to their children unless you know you're adopted or you know that you're donor conceived. But to have not been told is to just to fall into the default mode. And I think when parents don't tell, they're taking advantage of that and they're knowingly taking advantage of that. And so it's deceptive. Yeah. So let's, because I was thinking, I mean, you can imagine, I agree, you can, we can at least fill out like maybe in the far in the future, all our genetic information will be, uh, and all our family genetic information will be uploaded into a big database. Yeah. And we won't even look at it, but, you know, doctors or some future medical robots will be taking care of us. So the worry about medical information will just disappear. Uh, you can imagine that. And then imagine that uh, the people are going to just effectively keep it a secret. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's a, another thing I was thinking is there are other cases like, um, you know, people who discover their parents. There's a case that comes up later in the book. Someone who discovers their parent actually had a previous marriage and then the other person died, you can imagine maybe they had a previous family and everyone in, the fa in that previous family was tragically died. And so that's all information that could come out that would be very traumatic. And you could wonder, should they keep it a secret or tell their kid? And I think one thing I like about your focus on this deception is it seems like there's something different about not telling the secret in this case relative yes. to these other cases. And yeah, that's right. So yeah, what you, what you say is, I mean, so one, one thing you say is that the deception and I, and I, and I agree with you. I mean, I could deceive my kids about, you know, you mentioned funny stuff about Santa Claus or whether someone's drinking uh, Chardonnay out of a sippy cup. Like there's some yeah. funny stuff <laughs> in the book that I liked, but you know, you focus in on the idea that there's something particularly problematic about being deceptive about 
your genetic relation to your children and that it impedes intimacy. So I thought maybe if you could say more about, because I, and so one thing that comes up in there is you bring this up, someone could say, let's say I don't tell my kid that I'm not the genetic uh, progenitor of them, but, uh, but I've raised them from day one. And I might think, well, okay, all I'm keeping from them is a causal fact about how they ended up being, re being related to me. And I think being a parent, I think our relationship is just all about everything that I've done since they were yeah. here. And it's, we have this bond and, you know, uh, I think that's the source of all my, uh, you know, special obligations and permissions if you're a philosopher. Um, but then I, th so I thought that was interesting. You confront that and you say, well, okay, it's, it's not just like some other causal fact. Like I was thinking, here's a case I thought of is that imagine a couple met, uh, before and they were they met an AA, uh, they might be reluctant to tell their kids, oh, yeah. we met an AA. And so that might yes. be part of the causal story of how they met. Yeah. Um, so that so, but so that so and so I I like that that you say it's not just like another piece of causal information about how they ended up being the parent. So yeah. maybe, yeah, say say more about that and why you think that is problematic for the relationship. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, so 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 part of it, I mean, the way that you put it is, I don't, the way you put it is, is interesting. I mean, so one thing to say is, is I think like in principle, I could imagine parents for whom it's, it's just not relevant to them. Um, they treat it as, uh, as no more significant than the color of socks they were wearing, like on the day the child was conceived that I, I don't, I don't keep that. I haven't told my children that I don't even know. Uh, uh, um, and I'm not keeping a secret. It's just irrelevant. It's just not. I, so I could imagine someone it's like, it didn't, it didn't even occur to us, but realistically, right. This is not the way it goes. Um, uh, uh, the, the, the parents, know and make the decision not to disclose. And so in that case, it, uh, the, the information is presumed to have significance. Uh, it might be significant to the parents, they, you know, uh, but it might not be. They might think, well, we think it's irrelevant, but we think it's gonna be significant to the child. Uh, um, and so on, on that grounds, we want to keep it away from them because we're worried about what it will mean. Um, and I think in general, if um, there's a bit of information between people who are in an intimate relationship and it's presumed to have significance, um, you think it's the kind of thing that will really matter to the other person uh, and you keep it from them, uh, then you're creating, as I put it, sort of distance in the relationship. Distance that's at odds with the intimacy that should be present in the relationship. Um, and in the case, in, in, so that's about sort of secret keeping in general. In the case of this particular secret, um, it's not just, I think, a causal fact about how the child came to be, uh, but built on that, uh, um, I think are, so if the child doesn't know, uh, there are all kinds of assumptions about the basis of the parent-child relationship, um, of what makes this person my, my parent. I mean, I think typically uh, when um, uh, social parent and genetic parent don't come apart when they're the same person, I think most of us don't really make this distinction between um, who's my parent, like, causally and who is my parent socially uh, the person responsible for raising me they're just kind of like a, a a mishmash in our head and so i think a child that hasn't been told will will have a certain understanding of not just sort of the cause of their coming to being but the basis of the very relationship with the parents uh and so i think keeping information that is presumed to be significant 
from someone about the very basis of that relationship, where the relationship is an intimate relationship of some kind, um, is at odds, is at odds with the norms of being in that kind of relationship. Okay. Yeah, no, and and uh, that's helpful because I, I think, yeah, I think it, this discussion is interesting. It's sort of adding to what I got when I read the book because I was still a little not clear on what what why you would think it's the basis. I was thinking, well, some people might think that it's part of the basis in that situation. Some people wouldn't. And it just seemed like we could be kind of pluralists about whether yeah. it is in fact part of the basis. But now I'm starting to see probably you'd be okay with that. But you're thinking that the way our, for at least a lot of our listeners probably and readers of your book, uh, in, in, a, in a lot of societies, if not all uh, currently, there are going to be social factors in play that are going to lead the children to take it to be part of the basis. And so Correct. it's, and so it's right. not that from a philosophic point of view, we might think we could in principle, and maybe there are pockets of certain societies or who knows what, where they have a different view. But, and so that's, that's helpful for me to see that it's this, this, what, what do you expect the kid to assume about the basis of the relationship? Correct. I mean, so one thing that comes up in a number of places in the book is that gamete donation and conception takes place against a backdrop, a, 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 a very sort of heteronormative, but even more importantly, bionormative uh, um, society, uh, one which, which sees as sort of the default assumption that children, uh, uh, that a family is a man and a woman, who have children who are genetically related to them. And, you know, we, we accept that not all families are like that, but that's sort of the default mode. Uh, uh, um, uh, and, um, and so I think when you don't disclose, if you're a heterosexual couple, you're sort of taking advantage of that. Uh, and, um, uh, and I may have used the word passing and effectively passing as a biogenetic family and doing so because you are worried about what it would mean to the child if they knew otherwise. So this is this case of point again about the secret having presumed significance. Uh, so the parents themselves might genuinely believe that it doesn't matter, that no one should care about this stuff. Um, but if they really believed that no one would in fact care about it, then uh, they would either just tell or it would be more like the socks thing. Uh, but that's not what happens. Like either it in fact matters to them, they've got their own, which is I think very, very common, uh, their own lingering doubts, worries about their connection to their child if they're not genetically related to them, or they're worried about how the child will react. Um, and so that gets to the point you were talking about that they, to the extent that when they don't tell, they're sort of helping themselves to a, a, a presumed understanding that the child has about what it means for these people to be my parents. Right. Um, yeah. One no, and I, and, and I think you're right. I mean, because you, you I mean, saying they're taking advantage. I mean, one way you, that like, we'll talk about this getting on, but I mean, that could be a, there could be a beneficent intent there where they think they're trying. And I, and I noticed you quoted yes. some people who say, some people seem to say something like, I wouldn't really be a dad anymore. They say things like that. Other people are worried about the harm to the kids. So yeah. Yes. No, that's true. Right, right. And so one thing, I'm glad you mentioned that. So I mean, one thing that is maybe, uh, well, I don't know if it's annoying for some philosophers is that like the conclusions of the book have this like, um, sometimes for the most part, you know, kind of, kind of conclusion. Like in general, you should disclose, but there may well be cases where that's not the thing to do. Maybe you're in a social milieu where it will truly have 
um, profoundly negative effects on on the child uh, um, uh, uh, for whatever reason. In that case, I think, okay, well, now we've got competing goods and you need to think about it. Um, there's also a difference between disclosing, which I think one should do in general, early, early and often, right? Uh, uh, um, and that's a separate question from, well, I haven't disclosed and now my child is a teen or my child's in their 20s or they're in their 30s. Okay, well, that's a different kettle of fish. Uh, um, I mean, I think you didn't do what you should have done, but given that that's the case, so now it's like it's less it's less obvious. I mean, I'm still inclined to think you you, you should, but there's this, there's this other weight on the scale of this could tear the relationship asunder. Um, and that's really worth considering. So uh, yeah, really nothing in the book is, uh, is universal. I think in general, people should use open donors. And I think in general, people should disclose. Um, but I can definitely imagine cases where uh, um, both of those things aren't true. Yeah. Okay. So, well, this kind of gets us uh, into the next main topic of the book, which is, let's say you're going to use, uh, you're going to use a donated gamete. And uh, at this point, you may be convinced you should not keep it a secret. You know, like you're saying, everything else equal. But then there's a question of how important is it to have an open donor versus an anonymous and analogous right. questions. If you're going to donate eggs or sperm, how important is it that you choose being an open donor versus anonymous? And yeah. in both cases, there are a set of views that come out here. And so one view you've mentioned is uh, you call it the profoundly prudentially important view. I mean, it could almost be that having genetic knowledge is essential to uh, you're good in part for healthy identity formation. And so this is just knowing who your genetic uh, pro progenitor it, progenitors are. Yeah. It just is objectively this very valuable thing and it's essential to having a good life uh, more or less. That's one view. Then there's another view which says, well, look, people have a really strong interest in this information and maybe they take it to be very good but that's a reflection of certain social, uh, I, I think, you know, I, I say you could have the view that that interest is sort of morally sketchy in the sense that right. like you've talked about already, it might reflect certain social norms uh, that are putting pressure on people to want to have a certain type of family. Yeah. And then you carve out a middle position that you call yes. the significant interest view. So I thought that, so that'll be, and I think the general question here is, you know, people do in fact have an interest. And I was thinking, I've known people who are adopted who had a very strong interest in having genetic knowledge. Yeah. And so similarly, someone who found out that they, that they, um, one of their, their one of their genetic progenitors was a do, do, someone who donated a gamete, they might have a very strong interest in knowing who that person was. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's a question of, is that, is that, is that interest something that's tracking something that's profoundly essentially good for them they need? Is it actually maybe we should sort of think it might be a reflecting a pernicious social structure? Yeah. And then what's your middle ground? So I thought we could kind of get into that main yeah. part of the book. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you're right. I try to find this middle ground. I'm an inveterate fence sitter. So that's reflected in the in the position in the book. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned what I call the profound prudential good view. You articulated it well, uh, uh, um, this idea that having genetic knowledge, where again, that, that doesn't mean like the, the printout that you might get from a genomics lab with all the genetic information, but knowing who your genetic parents are. 
um, being able to point to them and like, you know, see that that's it. And probably being able to talk to them. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean being in a relationship, but knowing, knowing who they are. Uh, um, uh, so one view is that this is utterly essential to healthy identity formation. Um, the, just the best version of this view does not maintain that it is essential for having a good life. Uh, um, so, so like David Velleman is the philosopher I think, who, who represents this view uh, in my book. Um, his view is definitely not that if you're donor conceived and you don't know who your genetic parents are, your life is not worth living. Uh, right. That that's, would be an insanely strong view. But he makes this nice, really nice point that the standards for bringing someone into um, into existence are different, is higher than merely having a life that's worth living. Um, so he's, he'd be happy to say that someone could um, be doing like, like really, really well, have a very rich life, but nonetheless, he thinks that their life is, the term he uses is truncated uh, um, for lacking this thing uh, that is essential to full flourishing um, and that it is um, disrespectful to bring someone into the world under those conditions. Uh, because this thing is so important to healthy identity determination. Um, so that's right. That's one view. And uh, uh, it, it, that's, so that's, that's not my view. Um, and here, here's where like the social science, of which there's not a huge amount, um, on donor-conceived people I think is relevant. So to, to the extent that there's social science out there, it suggests that donor-conceived people do really, really well in life. The families function really, really well. Um, it is true that um, many, many donor-conceived people, it seems like the majority, the strong majority, um, uh, who know they are donor-conceived, uh, want genetic knowledge. But it's not universal. Uh, there are people who seem genuinely indifferent to it. Uh, and I think we should take those voices like, like really, really seriously, um, that those people aren't making a mistake. Um, and I think if you subscribe to the profound prudential good view, then you've got to think that they are making some kind of mistake. They're in some kind of self-denial. They're not being honest with themselves. I just don't think that's true. I mean, I think, I think there are people to whom it is extremely important. And I think there are people to whom it's maybe not so important. Um, so that moves me away from the profound prudential good view uh, to what I call the significant interest view, which is that what matters is the fact that people are really, really interested in it. Um, that's the thing that matters. And so I try to tell a general story about um, what, what parents should be doing, what the obligations of parenthood are with respect to their children's interests, what I call their significant interest. So something that that really matters to a child. Uh, um, what are parents' responsibilities to help their children fulfill those interests? Um, and the claim is if, you, if you've got good reason to think in advance that your child is going to have a significant interest, it could be anything, right? You know, we're, don't need to just think about an interest in genetic knowledge. Um, if you know, if you've got good reason to think that in advance they're they're going to have this interest and it's going to be significant to them, it's something that they're really going to care about. Um, then you've got a really strong reason um, to help them achieve to to meet that interest, if the interest is a worthwhile one. So it's not just any interest of a child, right? If they have an, an interest in really hurting other people. Um, I don't think that you as a parent have a weighty reason to help them achieve, you know, meet that interest. Um, but if it's a worthwhile interest, I kind of think you do. Um, uh, now, of course, in many, many cases, you don't know what your child's significant interests are going to be. You need to, you know, children are their own people um, and you can, you'll see 
sort of what comes up. And so there might be things that really matter to your child when they're, when they're, when they're coming sort of online as a person in their own right. And you think, oh, if I'd known that, uh, I would have maybe done things differently uh, when they were two or before they were born. And what's interesting about the gamete donation case or the gamete conception case is that given what we know from the social science, it's a pretty, you, you know in advance, it's a pretty good bet, it's foreseeable is the way that I put it, that your child will have the significant interest. And so this is the kind of, uh, of, of interest where um, I think you can, here in the choice of how to conceive the child, make a decision about whether you're gonna put the child in a good position to achieve that, to meet that interest or not. Um, and because I think you should put your children in the position to meet their significant interests, you should make the choice to use an open donor because that's going to help them meet the interests they're likely to have. Now, as I said, you only need to do that if it's a worthwhile interest. And so that this raises two, two kinds of responses. One is, well, well, hold on. If you think that the interest in genetic knowledge is worthwhile, why go through this point, the social science point that, the, that um, donor-conceived people tend to want to know this? If it's worthwhile, just like build the case on it being worthwhile. Once you see why it's worthwhile, then you've got a, just a direct argument for why you should use an open donor. Um, that's one kind of pushback on the significant interest view. And then the other's from the other side, which is to say, why you know, why do you think it's worthwhile in the first place? Maybe it's not worthwhile. So let me we'll just take those in turn. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing I thought I'd emphasize first, uh, just because I think for me it was really interesting, is your pushback against the view that's associated with Velleman that if you don't have this information, it will, you know, not make your life not worth living, obviously, but disfigure your life or, or, or be a serious harm. I, I noticed one thing you, you kind of get into in the book is, at least from what I've read from your book, from Velleman, uh, and that's the main case I know of, that argument really focuses on the value of genetic knowledge for healthy identity formation. Yeah. And so in the book, one thing I want to just highlight is you actually go through three main questions that someone might want to answer in order to figure out who they are or who they want to be. Right. And then you make a strong case that some people might think the genetic knowledge is important for answering those questions and other people could answer those questions with, while thinking that information is totally irrelevant. Right. And so I, I think that for me, that seems like a very, maybe you could say a little bit about that. We don't have to go into all the gory details, but I think that seems like a really strong challenge to people who have the, the, the profound potential good view because it, it sort of gets into the details of what you want to do with identity formation and just makes the case yeah, some people could totally reasonably think uh, genetic knowledge is not relevant to my identity formation. So then, it, yeah, um, right, right, right. So I said earlier, like we should take seriously that, like that, some people report that they're not interested in this, and the stuff you're mentioning is sort of trying to make sense of of how that's intelligible or how that's perfectly acceptable or rational, or people aren't necessarily missing anything in having that attitude. And yeah, you're right. I mean, you basically gave the response to why grounding an argument for why people should use an open donor just directly on the value of having genetic knowledge, I think isn't going to work. And that's because when you look at the value of having genetic knowledge, it doesn't turn out to be um, uh, important in the way that someone like Velleman thinks it is, which is to say like borderline necessary for healthy identity formation. Um, rather, uh, a genetic knowledge, as I 
try to argue is can can be a significant source of self-knowledge. So you mentioned this question, who am I? It comes up a lot when you read um, accounts of donor-conceived people who, who want to know who their genetic parents are. They want to answer this question, who am I? Which is a really interesting question because on the one hand, it's like, it's like, what do you mean? Who are you? Uh, um, you know, you know you who who you are. You know, you you know what you like, and you you know you're you don't lose yourself in the world. Uh, uh, um, uh, you know who you are. But uh, on the other hand, it's like we can all feel the force of exactly what's being asked. Um, the trick is to really try to like dig down and see like what exactly is that question. And as you noted, I try to break it down into three different concerns. One is, what am I like? Uh, um, what kind of per what kind of person am I? Um, another is how did I come to be? You know, how did the universe sort of conspire to bring me into existence? And then the last is um, who am I like? Um, and, and sort of non accidentally, who am I like? Who who has made me like I am? Um, and I think uh, again, without going into any of the gory details, I think a genetic answer uh, uh, like answering those questions by telling, by knowing who your genetic parents are um, is one way to answer all of those questions. But uh, to put it roughly, like it, it is only one way and that there are ways of telling totally rich, uh, uh, like offering very rich narratives, rich answers to all of those questions that simply do not put the emphasis on your genetic past. Um, so, I, I mean, the way I call it a, an op, so genetic knowledge on this view is an optional prudential good. I, I, I kind of, this isn't in the book, but I kind of liken it to, uh, constructing, um, you know, constructing like a, like a, like a solo in music, like a jazz improvisation. Uh, you know, Miles Davis was a master at this and, uh, um, uh, it's, it would be a funny critique of listening to a Miles Davis, uh, solo to be like, but you left out so many notes. Um, it, it would be better if there was even more in there. Um, maybe not, not even just more notes, but totally different genres. Like, why didn't you, why didn't you have, add a techno beat to what, you know, Philly Joe Jones was doing on the drums underneath? And say, it would be, we can't include everything, right? A, a improvisation is trying to get from A to B in an intelligible way. Um, and I think our answer to the question, who am I, is doing the same thing. Um, and there's just not one path. Um, Having said that, I think the, like pursuing a path where where the answer you come up with relies heavily on the fact that this person is my genetic parent can be a very rich, fruitful way of doing it. Um, and again, this isn't just about donor-conceived people. I think a lot, many of us, we all have parents, many of us have children, really like get a, a, a joy isn't the right word, but a real sense of meaning from this idea that I, you know, uh, um, I am like you, I'm like you because because of you in some sense. There's something that we really share. We're from, we're from the same mold in some very straightforward way. I think that can be a real source of meaning. Um, but I just don't think it's the only one. And there are ways to be like people that have nothing to do with genetics. Um, and so that's why I don't think that just a direct story about the value of genetic knowledge is going to get you to the conclusion that you should use an open donor. You need that story about its potential value wedded to this idea that, and in fact, people are really interested in it for the most part. Yeah, no, and I, and that's good. And you have a distinction in the book that's useful where you say, you know, you're, on your view that you're telling now, you know, it's, we should be pluralists yes. about the ways people can have valid and valuable answers to the questions about that involve, that are involved in forming an identity. And 
we shouldn't be chauvinists and think yeah. the genetic story is the only one. So that I think now, to me, that brings up that worry about external influence. You might think, well, okay, some people think genetic information is very important to f- answer these questions about who they are, who they're like, all these other, how they come to be. Um, other people think, I don't, you know, I have this other story that's great. And I, so I play a different type of music, right? And yeah, someone plays, someone's into the genetic knowledge. But then I think then there is this other worry that we should get to where some people think, well, but there's a reason people, yes. some people like the genetic knowledge story. And it's not such a good story. Uh, it's, it's morally tainted. So, and, and then that would be sort of like saying, you know, maybe we should really be pushing people to, to form their identities with a non-genetic story, if that's an available option, because the interest in genetic knowledge is sort of either for them or socially pernicious. So yeah, I thought we could get into that. Yeah, exactly. You're right. So, so the the significant interest view claims that you know this this in, that parents should basically help their children meet their their worthwhile significant interests, and then the claim is, well, is it so clear that the interest in having genetic knowledge is worthwhile? Um, and you articulated why. You know, I think for some people, this objection is like, what? Like, why would you think it's not worthwhile? But there is a certain lens from which it actually seems very, very plausible. And I think the way to see that is to look at other interests that people have um, that we might think are pernicious in this way. So certain gendered interest or gender-based interests, if you want to put it that way, seem to have this flavor. So, um, uh, uh, you know, there are some interests that people have that are just on their face, morally problematic. You know, if someone's interested in hurting another person, someone's interested in torturing an animal, you say, look, if this is, if you have this interest, this is a baldly immoral interest. Just on its face, this is a bad interest. But there are all kinds of interests that people have that are not like that. So, so uh, um, I mentioned certain gendered interests. So to have your body look a certain way, um, to if you're a man, to you know be masculine in a certain way, maybe an interest in not showing emotion or something like that. Um, I, it would be strange to think of these along the lines of like an interest in torturing an animal. Um, but nonetheless, I think the word pernicious is really good. We say. Um, we can not, not only can we explain why people have come to have this interest, given the society that we live in, um, in some sense, given the society we live in, it might in fact be rational to have that interest. Um, that interest might be a rational response to problematic societal structures that have sort of foisted certain options on us that are less than ideal. Um, uh, and, uh, and it seems like the right response in the face of those interests, both, I don't know, from an impersonal point of view, but let's say if you're a parent is to say, well, I understand why you have this interest, but it would be better if you didn't have it at all. It would be better if society were such that um, this weren't seen as important at all. This weren't treated as significant at all, like a desire to be thin, for example. Um, I get why you have it. In some sense, I can even, uh, in some sense, I can see that it's it's rational given the society that we live in, but um, it's a shame we live in such a society. And what we should be working to do is to use this phrase that Sally Hasling uses, we should be working to change the schema, uh, the schema within which this interest has a home and makes a certain kind of sense. And so you might think that the interest in genetic knowledge is like that, that um, it comes online in the context of a society that places a huge amount of significance on genetic relatedness and tends to tell um, highly reductive, simplistic stories 
about the significance of being genetically related to someone. And you can see this in all kinds of cultural artifacts. I mean, Star Wars is a really great example. Um, there's this thing, this essence that goes through the generations, the Force, uh, you know, some je through Jedis and um, uh, uh, um, uh, who you are, you know, you're destined in a certain way, given your, your lineage to be a certain way. Um, uh, and so, I mean, that's, I mentioned Star Wars as an example, but when you start to look around, uh, it's very easy to see, right? That again, just sort of the default assumption in society is that parents are genetically related to their children um, and that that's a significant relationship. And if you grow up with that in the air and you learn that you don't have that, you know, surprise, surprise that you're going to be interested in having it because everything is telling you that you're missing something significant. Um, uh, and that it, it matters in a way that it probably does not matter uh, uh, in the way that a lot of people think it does. And partly because of overly simplistic stories about why I am the way I am. Um, and so it, from, with, from that point of view, the interest in genetic knowledge can start to look pernicious because it reflects what I call the bionormative prejudice. Um, the idea that genetic knowledge is hugely significant and that families not only tend to look a certain way, but should look a certain way. And so if you depart from that norm, then there's some missing piece that needs to be filled. Uh, and society is like, put a spotlight on that piece that's missing for you. Who wouldn't be interested in that case? And so then, then you, um, so then you can, again, make this sort of Hasslanger move and be like, well, I don't doubt that people are interested in it. I can understand why people are interested in it. It might, given our society, make a lot of sense to be interested in it. But nonetheless, we ought to be working to change the schema. Uh, uh, in that sense, the interest isn't worthwhile. So instead of sort of reinforcing the interest in genetic knowledge by saying, oh, people need to make sure that donor-conceived people have access to genetic knowledge, um, we should, at the very least at the same time, be working sort of to dismantle the the structures, both psychological, but maybe also institutional, um, that make it seem hugely significant. Yeah, so, so that's helpful because I, and I wanted to bring up something because I, I was thinking like, one thing I thought was interesting about that part of the book and is, you know, thinking about whether it's really wrong that certain types of families are better than others. And so obviously one interesting thing about that is, so as you say, Imagine a kid who's raised thinking, I want to be really thin. Well, it's hard to think of a philosophic, uh, serious, normative view on which someone's making an argument that at least a lot of people take seriously, that it's really better to be thin. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but now, but if you think of, say, you know, are there people arguing out there that certain types of marriages are better involving, you know, heterosexual couples? Or yeah. are there people out there uh, arguing that, for example, maybe a family where uh, the two genetic parents are a man and a woman and they live together and raise the kid. Well, guess what? I mean, there, there we have people are making arguments about those. And so th those aren't arguments that I personally accept. Uh, I, I, I've stopped teaching them for, for a variety of reasons, but I just think it's interesting that so those views, there are people out there that I think would, would want to defend. Um, and I think especially if you start looking at various, you know, philosophic tradition and cultures yeah. and religions, we're going to probably find a large number of people who think 
that there's a reasonable view that yep. that the typical fa- the traditional family is better. Because I started reading up on this in preparing for this, and I started being curious, like, what does the Catholic Church say? And one interesting thing I found is people who were writing blog posts, they're Catholic, they've adopted kids, they're involved in Catholic adoption. And one of their big worries is that they think adoption is bad is a problematic situation in our society because kids get say get get teased by their peers yeah yeah because they're adopted and then the, the person was pointing out a thing you said about popular culture where they the, this this on this blog post someone was mentioning you know on the school ground kids will say that as like a way to to give like bully another kid or be mean oh yeah be like oh i bet you're really adopted and that's like a joke people tell that's mean but and that tells yeah. you that there's a prejudice against oh yeah and and I think what's interesting about that is I think someone who does think the traditional family and the traditional heterosexual family is in some way better uh, and is an ideal, I think they could still get behind the idea that it's not okay for people to be treating it like if you deviate from that norm, you're someone who's to be ridiculed, you're someone who's to be mistreated. Well, sure. I would hope. I mean, boy, I would hope everyone could get on board with that. Though these days. But then obviously I'm in the same philosophic camp as you of not embracing the idea that certain traditional families are better or anything right. like that. So then we'd have a, a additional reasons. But so I think, and so to me, putting that all together, it really does make the stronger. So now I want to get to your response that, you know, someone might think the desire for genetic uh, knowledge really reflects, you know, one thing that might reflect is a certain normative claim about certain families being better than others. And, you know, we might reject that. Other people might defend it. But it also reflects a social system of yeah. really mistreating and treating as second-class citizens and making kids feel bad. And yeah. if, if they don't have a certain genetic relationship or if they lack genetic knowledge. And so I think uh, when I first, when you first gave me that, I did think, oh, wow, this seems like a real worry that maybe uh, it taints the, the desire for genetic knowledge. Yeah. I, I I mean, I think it's a serious objection. And in the writing and continue to think about it, I, I really feel the force of it. So I definitely think like, look, uh, um, there is real work to be done to combat bionormative prejudice. I mean, certainly in the more explicit forms that you're mentioning of like literally berating people. I mean, I think, you know, that, that that's, I mean, it's just generally unacceptable to berate people about yes, anything. Every, everyone uh, can agree. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, um, but, but more subtly than that, the um, like either the more subtle attitudes that people have uh, um, uh, about what the, the best or like first kind of family is, and then seeing other families as, second best or what you do when you can't get the best kind of family, even though people may not formulate it in exactly those terms. Um, but also just like, like it's like certain things in the law. I give the example of like forms and medical offices, um, all these little things where we've set things up where, where it's just like the default is like man, woman, uh, uh, genetically related to their children. Um, and that so can then generate like friction in the lives of both parents of donor conceived children, but donor conceived children themselves who are like, well, I don't, I don't fit that. I don't fit the standard. And then, oh, huh. But, you know, again, that's something that might not otherwise have been significant to you or come to awareness now comes to awareness. Um, so uh, to that extent, I think that the objection is like is spot on. I think it's undeniable that we live in a biogenetic society. Um, and again, I mean, it's, it's really very easy, right, to 
uh, say that to see that people's notions of the significance of genetic relatedness often get expressed in terms like of, of blood, you know, blood is the thing that matters. And this is like a, a very both obscure and problematic notion uh, uh, um, that there's literally something in the blood that makes us who we are. Um, and, and again, there tends to be like highly reductive, simplistic accounts of like, oh, I, I like, I mean, I give an example in the book of someone being like, I like hard rock and I found out my donor likes hard rock. And I'm like, yeah, I, you know, okay, you know, I'm not saying that there's nothing of genetics, you know, nothing genetics has nothing to do with that. But um, the idea that like I got that from my donor from their gamete, I think is just overly simplistic, but I think it reflects this very common way of thinking that in some sense, who I am is destined, uh, 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 dest genetics uh, makes it destined to be a certain way. Um, so then, right, so then what's the response, right? In light of all that, you might think like, oh, everyone's, per everyone's interest in this is pernicious. Um, and my response is, uh, though it might be true that a lot of people's interest in it is is heightened, as it were, uh, by living in a bionormative society. Um, it's different from other pernicious interests, like the desire to be thin, for example, which um, uh, sort of has no uh, um, home in a well-functioning society. Um, so that if we change the schema, that interest would disappear altogether, barring really unusual circumstances. Um, uh, uh, that it's only intelligible in the context of a problematic schema. Um, and the claim is that the desire for genetic knowledge, and this is again, based on what we talked about before, telling a story about answering the question, who am I? Uh, and doing that through um, like the, the genetic route, as I put it, can be a meaningful story, suggesting that no, this interest um, uh, can have a home, out, uh, uh, have a home, be intelligible, be something that we can recognize as worthwhile, even outside of a problematic schema. And so then, then the goal, I think, is both to, you know, uh, acknowledge bionormative prejudice, work against it, notice that it probably heightens people's interest, but then without saying that the interest itself um, is nothing more than a function of uh, bionormative prejudice. No, that, and so that, I mean, I'm, I guess we talked about this ahead of time. And so I thought I'd bring up at the end of the book, you have a reveal that uh, yeah. you, in fact, are a donor. That's uh, true. And you're, it sounds to me like you're going to be a known donor who's going to yes. have a relationship yep. uh, with the child. And so yep. I'm kind of curious, you know, if you could say something about that and what, you know, kind of about the situation, but also uh, it made me wonder, does that heighten your sensitivity to these worries about the way the bio-normative schemas work in our society and things, and how how has that impacted your thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, it's impacted my thinking about it a lot. I mean, one, I I became a donor before thinking about these issues, so in some sense, I did it like exactly backward. Uh, um, and yeah, I'm a known donor, so uh, um, donated to friends who I know and the kids know me and they know who I am and what I am and the like. Um, uh, and so I, in some ways, the decision to donate, which is not just mine, it was also my, my spouse's, um, was in some sense thoughtless uh, um, in the sense that I had not thought at book length on these issues. Um, and so, 
Yeah, I mean, I say this in the book, like the cynical interpretation of the book is that it like goes on to like justify my, my choice. But the less cynical way is that like, well, you know, the people make decisions without a lots of explicit thought, but they're, but but those decisions can reflect underlying values in a certain way. Um, and so I think like the book is a teasing out of, of what I think the underlying values were. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so yes, that is right. And I was, I, you know, I've, I thought long and hard about whether to put it in the book or not. Um, it's at the very end, so now we've, you know, spoiler, sorry. Um, you can go so read do you that think, too. Do you think it improves, because that's one thing we talked about, or I mentioned early, you know, a lot of times when you're doing philosophy, you, you think, okay, we're gonna try to abstract from our personal lives and think yeah. about this in an objective way and everything. And I sort of wondered, you know, do you think you wrote a better book because of the background of having been a donor, someone who donated and had experience with that? Do you think that, helped you write a better book or not? Or do you sort of feel like it's, you know, maybe it piqued your interest, but then at the end yeah. of the day, you probably could have written just the same book or just as good a book uh, otherwise? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know. I mean, so certainly it caused me to think about things that I wouldn't have otherwise thought have. But your question is like, well, yeah, but give it, you know, it played this causal role, but has it in fact given me certain kinds of insight? I just, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, one thing that's certainly true is that a lot of the ideas of the book were, were developed in conversation with um, my spouse, but also the people that I that I donated to. Um, I mean, the, the person I donated to is a philosopher. So uh, we have email exchanges and texts. And so uh, in that sense, I think the book is much, much, much richer for us um, having sort of in some sense gone through it um, together. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it's definitely true um, that there's a, a segment of the donor conceived community that feels really quite strongly that if someone's not donor conceived, then they should uh, remain remain silent um, or at least be very modest in their expression of their ideas. Um, I, I very much resist that idea, right? I don't think any topic is just the purview of one population. Um, and uh, I think that being involved can both, you know, either as a donor conceived person, as the parent of a donor conceived person, as a donor, um, can both uh, give insight and can distort. Uh, and um, it's hard to know in advance what where the insight will be and what will distort. We just sort of have to have to look at it. But this is why I think it's important to have multiple voices. So I think it, it would be, it, it would you know, it, big. I mean, this is the problem that sort of beset philosophy traditionally is that people have been opining about other people who have not had any voice in the conversation, um, and that's definitely a problem. Uh, uh, but I don't think the right view then is only people uh, 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 who are affected in a certain way should have a voice in the conversation. I think. We should all have a voice in the conversation, um, but everyone should come to it realizing that their perspective is, is I mean, is, is just is limited. Um, in some ways, they might have more insight, but in other ways, they are probably blinded. So, you know, I'm not, I'm fully aware that I wrote a book that basically says, the conclusion of the book was not, wow, Grohl, you really did this the wrong way, being a donor, right? The conclusion of the book is like, and, hey, you did it the right way. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm aware of that. Uh, um, so it's hard to know to what extent your prior commitments, some rational, not other rational are, are sort of driving the philosophy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wish I had that kind of self insight. Yeah, right. <laughs> nobody does. <laughs> we'll never know. Right. Um, yeah. so I guess last thing I just mentioned, first of all, that the book does end with a discussion of donors and do donors yeah. have 
yeah. similar obligations that you might think parents do to future yeah. kids. And so yeah. I don't, we don't have time to get into that, but I wanted to mention there's an interesting chapter about donors and how being a donor might trigger parental responsibility. So anyone interested in questions about what triggers parental responsibility and whether right. parental responsibility can be transferred, I yeah. recommend that. Another thing is you have a final chapter on policy. So anyone yeah. who's interested in these questions, I recommend that. Um, but I just wanted to end with uh, other books or articles that, you know, either on this topic, or I notice you teach a class at Carleton on family values. So I'm yeah. just, what, what other books or articles uh, do you think are sort of exciting and are, are pointing in new directions uh, that you'd recommend people take a look at? Well, let me mention just a few philosophers who, who like my, I'm really glad you asked this, who like my ideas are like deeply indebted to. So I've already mentioned Sally Haslanger. Everyone should just go read Sally Haslanger on, on, on everything. Uh, but Charlotte Witt is another one. Halvard uh, Lillehammer is another one. These are all people who have very much pursued this idea that um, our society is highly bionormative um, and that um, genetic knowledge should not be prioritized as like the way to healthy identity determination. Um, so I, people should definitely go check them out. Um, I'm trying to think of... Uh, uh, I, I mean, in the chapter that you mentioned about parental responsibility talks a lot about Rivka Weinberg. Um, she has a book called The Risk of a Lifetime. And one of her chapters argues that when you understand uh, the nature of parental responsibility and how you get it, you'll come to the conclusion that gamete donation is immoral. It shouldn't happen at all. Um, she's a great writer. Uh, um, uh, her book is highly readable. So I, people should go, go check that out because uh, it's a good challenge to this idea that yeah, there's, you know, in principle, nothing wrong with gamete donation. Um, yeah, those, let's see. Uh, we, we, adoption came up very, very briefly. I think it's really interesting to think about differences between adoption and gamete donation. Mm -hmm. um, adoption is often seen as a very, as a, a, a morally unproblematic, maybe even morally demanded a, 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 um, thing that people can do. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said for that, but uh, there's also um, lots about adoption and how it actually functions, which is really food for thought. So um, a book that I read uh, um, at the recommendation of a sociology call, uh, uh, sociologist um, is called um, uh, Somebody's Children by Laura, uh, Laura Briggs, which talks about sort of the history of adoption in the United States over the last, I wanna say, um, 80, 100 years. It's just fascinating. Uh, highly recommended. I think when philosophers talk about adoption, we tend to have a, an overly flattened view of what's going on. Um, so I would, I would recommend that too. Great. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot. And thanks for being on, Daniel. And I uh, hope to see you again uh, sometime yeah. soon in person. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.